0: This is H.P.R. episode 2445 entitled, Information Underground, Backwards Capitalism. It is hosted by Lost and Drunks and is about 48 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is, Klaatu, Deep Geek and Lost and Drunks talk about markets, innovation and opportunity.
1: This episode of H.P.R. is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org.
2: Hey everyone, this is Klaatu, and you're listening to Hacker Public Radio, another exciting episode of Information Underground. Today I've got with me, uh, as usual, Lost in Bronx. Hello, everyone. And Deep Geek. Hello, everyone. Today I wanted to talk about what I'll just call upside down capitalism. And uh, this was a tough topic for me because I kept getting it sort of wrong. I had something that I wanted to say, and I wasn't quite sure what the angle was. So, first, I'm going to open up with, with two assumptions. A postulate, and then I'm going to give some observations. So assumption one is that political systems or systems, lifestyle systems are tangible instances of the people living them out. So in other words, if I say capitalism, I'm not talking about theoretical, like how capitalism is supposed to work. If I say communism, which I'm not going to say, but if I was saying that, I wouldn't be talking about how comp- how communism was supposed to be as written down by Marx and Engels. It, it's just like the actual way that they, they, they uh, manifested themselves in the real world. So that's assumption one. Assumption two is that most of us sincerely believe we are each one of the good guys, right? We were raised to conform to our society, and many of us have a possibly subconscious belief that – God or the force of good or whatever you want to call it is with us. Even when we recognize our society's faults, we still believe that we're generally doing the best we can. And other people have maybe even stronger beliefs, consciously believing that God actually takes sides and that God is literally on their side. And that by living their life in a certain way, they're they, they are literally carrying out the will of God. So these are two assumptions that I'm making in this in this thing. Okay, so my postulate. We think that capitalism is great because it's produced modern wonders, right? We've got medical uh, stuff. We've got great military stuff. We've got technology that we all certainly on Hacker Public Radio love. But we ignore that we're where we are today after hundreds of years of, say, imperialism and feudalism and theocracy and more imperialism. Communist Russia, after all, was the first one to reach outer space. But we we downplay that, because the USA created an arbitrary milestone. No, no, the goal was to get to the moon. First one to the moon wins. And so we get credit for that. The end results don't justify the means, or else we would have to be okay with all the systems that came before us. It's easily arguable that if American brand capitalism had popped up in ancient Rome, it would not have produced the microchip, right? So capitalism didn't do that. It was something else. Now, here's my observation. Hopefully, that'll bring all of this other stuff into perspective. I think we have capitalism sort of reversed, mirror imaged, upside down, whatever. Capitalism is constantly striving for a singularity. The goal of any entrepreneur is to be the single best seller. There can be only one, and everyone wants to be that one. In tech, we appear to have room for maybe three. You know, you can look at, you can look at, The tech scene, and you can kind of see the three big ones, and they kind of change who the three big ones are from every ten years or so. And you can kind of, you could say that that's fine, that there are a three, and it's kind of like this Holy Trinity thing. Or you could say, well, there are three, but they're infighting to try to be the, the best of the three. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Point is, the goal of capitalism is destruction of anything seen as competition, because the goal is always to have the most money. Capitalism wants 80% 80% to your 20% or 90% to your 10 or, at the very minimum, 51 to your 49 Do we have existing examples of systems that do not strive for this and yet also succeed? Well, I've got a couple. So first one that's freshest for me because it's the newest discovery is gaming culture. So if we look at Wizards of the Coast, the publisher of Dungeons & Dragons, which I've been talking about a lot on Hacker Public Radio lately, the owners of D&D, a company called TSR, famously crumbled, fell apart before being rescued by Wizards, uh, which owns it now, because essentially they were publishing too much content. They were flooding their own market. The threat persists today, in fact, and Wizards of the Coast publishes D&D content at such a rate that a lot of players fear that the system is going to get bogged down. And the company's response to this, use what you want and ignore the stuff that you don't want. In other words, they recognize that the power to formulate the one true version of their product lies ultimately with the users. They don't limit their users. So when I started playing tabletop RPGs, I discovered that there were lots of tabletop RPGs, not just Dungeons & Dragons, which I'd grown up with. In fact, d and uh, which adopted an open license in 2001, has even been forked into something called Pathfinder and that's the sort of the D&D version or that is to D&D what like or the MATE desktop is to Gnome 3 it's kind of the, the 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 coexisting alternative I also discovered a fruitful indie RPG scene online with hundreds of games created and published by players all over the world and that's not all there's a homebrew scene too with dungeon masters from all over the world publishing stories and worlds and environments with modified rules for everyone to try So, at some RPG conventions, I got to play a bunch of different systems and kind of realized that these were hundreds of different games that were actually different from one another. They weren't just Dungeons & Dragons skinned with different heroes and monsters. The games were tangibly different, like the way that you rolled the die and when you rolled them and, and what the die meant, that sort of thing. Simply put, the tabletop RPG scene is a fractured mess, and it's incredibly liberating. People come up with their own rules, and they share the rules, and they share their worlds. They put them online. They distribute them. Tabletop gaming has the advantage that its reach is inherently microcosmic. So what you play and how you play it matters to you and your friends that you play with. There's no advantage necessarily in getting other people to adopt your rules and ideas. There's no need for a singularity. Another example, obviously, for Hacker Public Radio listeners, Linux distributions. Linux operating system benefits from exactly the same kind of havoc. Anyone can create a bootable Linux OS, and as a result, there are literally hundreds of them. I think it's a stupid way, personally, to customize an OS. I, I, I don't actually like it. A standardized set of scripts and packages, I think, would be a lot more sensible and a lot purer to sort of the philosophy of Linux. But nevertheless, it happens, and people are happy with it. Why? Because even though the entire internet exists and there are millions of people using and wanting to use Linux, the only Linux that matters to you personally is the one that you actually use. Yet another example, open culture, creative culture, creative commons. There are plenty of communities online. Uh, I'm pretty heavily involved, I guess, with openclipart.org and freesound.org. People publish snippets of art, whether it's drawings or music, depending on which site you're talking about or they change someone else's art and re-upload it as a remix. And it's this big pool of assets and resources, so that if you as an artist sat down one day to cite where your work had appeared, it would basically be impossible to do. It would be a mess. But you could definitely have confidence that your work has been used. So open technology, culture, and gaming disproves the adage for me that financial competition is the sole motivator for excellence. It disproves the older adage that obligation to a divinity or an emperor or a god emperor is the only motivator. I don't think we as humans know yet what the motivator is, but I do think that we are seeing now such an abundance of collaboration leading to unexpected innovation and friendly competition that eventually we might just recognize that at best we got capitalism wrong. The key isn't to destroy all of the competition, but to foster it. What do you guys think?
3: The talk of collaboration makes me think of Hatsune Miku. Have you heard about this characterization? No. This is a Japanese eduro, or a, a animated singer. And it was started by a company that made this artificial voice that could sing in many octaves. And to actually push a point, they made it, it's a computer generated voice. Um, they actually made it in such a way that a human trying to do those notes and, and those octaves would actually wear out their voice before they could finish anything meaningful. They wanted to make it superhuman. And to market it, they created a anime characterization called Hatsune Miku, and, and this female animated character became a subject of international collaboration where people would send snippets and do fan art of her, and then they would animate her singing with this voice and the collaboration level is just amazing and became well-known enough for her likeness being licensed by Google for their online collaboration efforts. Interesting.
2: No, I'd, I've never heard of that.
3: Yeah, Google it
2: sometime.
0: Actually, I didn't recognize the name, but I recognized the story as you were going on, and um, she, will use that term, she is not the only figure like that anymore. There's actually kind of a thriving fan base for that, mostly in Japan. But a lot of anime fans have grown to, you know, their favorite singer is a singer that doesn't actually exist at all. You know, (laughs) Um, there there are quite a few of them like that. However, however... Back at the point. (laughs) Yeah, well, no. You know, close to the point, actually, is that... While there are fans who are creating their own versions of things like this, we're actually, we're not talking about a person, obviously. We're talking about an algorithm. We're talking about a, a program and that's wholly owned by a company as their intellectual property, and it's exploited that way. I, I'm not sure that the future... Uh, let me let me jump back. Let me jump back. I, I wrote a couple of uh, points that I wanted to mention based on Klaatu's presentation. Regarding gaming... The RPG tabletop market is limited, and I think they found that out the first time when TSR imploded. There was also, as I recall at the time, there was also a fair amount of mismanagement at that time. There, was a, there were a lot of upper management wars. Gary Gygax was kind of despised by a lot of people around him, from what I heard. And There were other cultural influences on it, but the market was very limited, and they, they hit that limit hard. As as Klaatu pointed out, they did flood the market. It was, it was everywhere for quite a while. I remember Barnes & Noble, when they first started bringing in RPG materials, they dedicated a huge amount of shelf space for RPG content, and almost all of it was D&D stuff. It was really saturated. And that caused part of their market to collapse, and then the company collapsed. They overextended themselves. It's pretty classic, I guess. However, I believe it still is. I believe that there is only ever going to be a certain level of popularity for tabletop gaming. Whereas certain markets, they balloon and they become much bigger. So that's why video gaming is much bigger than tabletop gaming. Even though tabletop gaming became mature much sooner than video gaming did.
3: I remember at the tail end of of my D&D experience back in the day... I, I began looking at things, and the only the only place I could find to migrate to at the time, and this was the the 80s, was the very very tiny wargaming or st- or strategic gaming things like Napoleon at Waterloo, stuff like that that was played on weird boards with geometric shapes, trying to plot out invasions and stuff.
0: Role playing games, specifically D and D, which was the first one came from war games it was an expansion of various war games that had come beforehand and Guy Gex and a couple other people published a game called Chainmail that came just before D&D and Chainmail if you read the rules for Chainmail and I have I actually have or had a copy of it nearby if you read the rules for Chainmail you can see the antecedents of role-playing games doesn't it actually
2: even depend that you had a a copy of like some other game in order to even play chainmail is that i think i read that somewhere
0: well at least the version i had there was an appendix that um allowed you to expand into role-playing if you wanted to it would have been limited by what we would consider modern role-playing games today that the rules anyway there, there were virtually no rules but there were ideas floated in this appendix about how you could take it in that direction and then actual Dungeons and Dragons came about like a, just a couple of years later, like one or two years later, D&D first appeared. But when it comes to the capitalist element of gaming, I think that when you have a market that's very limited, but that's very passionate, you're going to see a tremendous amount of innovation surrounding that because it's going to be even if it's flooded by a particular flavor or a particular manufacturer. And it could be anything. It could be snowboarding. It could be, you know, it could be gardening, whatever the market happens to be. When when you have a limited market, even if you're flooding it with a particular flavor that could serve that market, so in this case, D&D, you're going to have a tremendous amount of innovation because an intrinsic part of D&D is creativity, not just for the gaming part, but for creating games. And... Therefore, people aren't necessarily going to be happy with that single flavor that they're getting. So I believe there's always going to be a great deal of non-commercial experimentation is the wrong word, non-commercial exploitation of that market uh, centering around its users. However, when you start getting bigger and bigger, you still see an awful lot of that, but you see it's a much smaller percentage of the user base, right? So when you start getting into video gaming, There is a great deal of non-commercial innovation structured around video gaming, an awful lot of it, in fact, and there's an awful lot of the sharing, the type of sharing that Kletu talked about. However, it is a much, much smaller percentage of the overall market than it would be, say, in tabletop gaming. My son, I'll call him Little Bronx, my son Little Bronx is an active part There's a program put out by MIT called Scratch, and they have... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know about Scratch, okay? Yeah, my my partner
2: teaches it all the time.
0: Okay. So, MIT, they used to be able to... The earlier version you could download, and it was a desktop tool that you could work with. But now the modern version, the, the latest version, is hosted by MIT. It's on their servers. And if you go there, that is such a rich source of innovation and collaboration. The type of thing that... Platoo was talking about regarding the clip art and, you know, people just borrowing content and constantly swapping content. And yes, some of it is probably copyrighted and some of it isn't. And it's you could never you could never sue anybody. You could never even find where your content went necessarily. I mean, uh, it's actually a little easier on Scratch because a lot of times they have a thread you can follow as to where your content, you know, if someone remixed what you did and came up with their own program, their own game. But even so, it's nearly impossible to find out where all the assets came from and something like that. And that's very, very rich. and thats I mean, it's really, really expansive and really big, but compared to the overall video game market, it's like it doesn't exist. It's like dew on a blade of grass compared to the ocean. It's so small. In other words, it's not commercially viable. That's, I guess, my point I'm getting to. And I can draw parallels to the early hip-hop movement where... Voice sampling and music sampling was very, very common. And I think we probably, the three of us are old enough to remember when that became a legal issue in the 90s. And the major labels were suing hip hop artists because they were sampling their music without their permission. You know, just a tiny piece of this thing. But they wanted a cut. And why? Because that market was big. Hip hop was growing. There was millions and millions and millions of dollars in there. And that's why they wanted a piece of that, right? Right. That was a huge market. That was a massive, massive market. And yes, there's tons of innovation, tons of, of people doing hip-hop, doing their own little thing, their own little thing. But it's a drop in the bucket compared to the larger audience that's using it. I mean, hip-hop spilled out of the urban environment, out of the largely African-American environment that, where it was spawned into common culture now hip-hop is american it's american music now it's just part of the american music scene the actual innovators who are mixing and and sharing in that type of music it's a tiny tiny portion of the larger music market i think my point here is that i don't necessarily see capitalism as being irrelevant to all these things i I think that the markets are best served if it's a smaller market it's best served by a non-commercial a non-capitalist sort of structure but as you get larger and larger and larger i think that becomes a much much smaller segment of those markets
3: you know what i would like to apply this the, the, these ideas to is is telecommunications and monopoly pricing versus non-monopoly competition because when telephone system was being developed it was an actual explicit monopoly and They would invest in the network, and that entitled them to a mock-up and a certain profit. They were the sole provider for a geographical location. And so it turned out that this system enabled a great deal of investment in infrastructure. Now that we have multiple telcos and areas, there's a rush to deplete infrastructure and not reinvest in it to increase profitability, because profitability is no longer guaranteed. And I'm wondering about these ideas of capitalism, how they apply to whether or not the underlying investment is increasing or decreasing.
2: The underlying investment in what? I'm not sure if I follow the question.
3: Well, in one case, the underlying investment in infrastructure itself you know was the minimum in infrastructure investment, and does leaving a competition scenario mean that you have to limit your investment? on the other hand, all major companies have some sort of research and development going on trying to find the next thing, so
2: I see what you're saying,
0: yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. So if we were to take that question and apply it, say, to tabletop role playing games, do you feel that it would be possible for, say, Wizards of the Coast or a some sort of coalition among publishers, tabletop gaming publishers, to expand that market more than they have and that they're artificially limiting it to maintain profitability?
2: I don't know if they're artificially limiting it. I don't know that they have geared up as much as other industries probably have in terms of spreading it around. I have no—I don't underestimate modern marketing and, you know— I mean, honestly, if we were doing this show maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, would we have said that video gaming was going to become, like, everyone plays them, like, it's obvious? Like, I don't know that we would have. I think we would have said the same thing about video gaming that we're saying now about RPG.
0: Well, I mean, I'm not going to try to prognosticate. I mean, I certainly have no idea what the future is going to bring in the entertainment industry. And video gaming is the single biggest point of the entertainment industry today. It's bigger than yeah. film. It's bigger than anything that's ever come before. Yep. And tabletop role-playing games, while they are part of the progenitors of that entire industry, that industry also arose in parallel, as, as I think we've we all, you know, because it, it arose from computing and everything else, right? So it arose temporally. It arose at about the same time. Home computing, I mean. And elements of tabletop gaming were applied to video games. Some video games, anyway. And it helped boost the idea of these large MMORPGs. And, and, and many of the what they would call a A game today. You can see the parallels that were pulled from tabletop gaming. So tabletop gaming has informed that massive industry yet it still remains a tiny i mean the market for it is probably i don't even know if it's expanded much since the you know the last time i was playing it back in the early 90s it's definitely bigger than when i first started but of all the people gaming i don't think that that percentage has grown very much at all since that time period so to me that means that market is very small and probably always will be I don't know if Wizards of the Coast or anybody else could expand that market. It may be saturated as it is. So I don't know. I mean, do you think that their philosophy that they could just shotgun this market and it doesn't really matter? Is it because that printing costs or production costs and distribution costs have dropped to almost nothing due to the Internet? Or because, I mean, when you have to stock gaming shops with physical copies of things, now you're talking dollars and cents. Do you think that's had an impact? I guess my point is, I don't think it's ever going to get much bigger than it is. It's always going to be around. It's always going to be people loving it, but is it going to ever expand and become something bigger?
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe not. Maybe this also sort of unexpectedly ties into what I was saying in my last Info Underground episode, where I was saying that I think it was, you know, the state of, of independent art was that, or, or the, the the way that independent art can combat sort of being taken over by, the machine is to actually, yeah, remain happily, I guess, small and not worry about becoming the only answer to this outlet, you know, sort of like we don't need to seek to conquer everything else. And I know that there's a a drive to do that because you do have to stay economically viable or whatever. So you do have to get big enough and powerful enough to earn that person's dollar, like when they're standing in the bookstore or whatever, and they have 20 bucks and they're going to spend it on either your product or that other person's product. But I think in smaller markets, I think that the competition is less brutal. And I mean, even like DP was saying about the telcos and and stuff like that, like back in the day, like again, I guess the 90s, I guess we all love the 90s now. I remember, you know, there were local ISPs and you went to your local ISP and got your little chunk of the internet. And that was... That was how it was, and there were lots of ISPs. There were lots of ISPs in my town. It wasn't even like every town had its own. Every town had several. So I think this is healthy is what I'm saying. and I, I like the disparity and the dispersal of these resources. and I think that it works better than what we tend to gravitate towards, which is nah, there's gonna be one. there's gonna be you're, you're gonna get Comcast or you're gonna get nothing, you know, or if Wizards of the Coast said, okay, we're we're going to battle now, and from now on, you're going to get Wizards of the Coast RPG and nothing else. And if you get anything else, then, then you know, whatever. So, yeah, I, I think it's good to share, I guess.
0: Ultimately, when there's a lot of money, that's when you start getting people who either want a piece of it or want to control it. In other words, when a market grows, that's when you start having commercial and capitalistic tendencies that, I think, The gist of this conversation, anyway, is that those things are negative on that market. Um, Yeah. Those influences are negative. How do you feel there's a way to combat that while still growing in size? In other words, say you wanted tabletop gaming to grow, right? You wanted it to get bigger. How do you expand that without it becoming something unrecognizable?
2: I think that... The way that I would love for things to grow is to grow outward rather than upward into a pinnacle. And I don't think that when something grows into a pinnacle of this is the answer, it actually answers a lot of people's problems or, or desires. So I think that if something's going to get big, then it does serve the user base or whatever, the customer base, to expand and to kind of grow out and become fractured and fragmented. And we usually say these things as a bad thing. We say that a fractured market is is unclear and difficult to, to navigate. But I, I actually think it's a, a huge benefit. I think it's a positive thing to be as fractured as you possibly can, because that means that... Everyone is getting their needs served, and they're feeding into this thing, but it's not necessarily one thing that's being fed into. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a business major, and I don't know what that would mean for the individual publishers, and maybe that would be a problem. Maybe it means that they're economically not viable. But then I see that as a problem of capitalism. I don't see that as my problem. I think that's their problem. I think that if we can't figure out how to deliver things, entertainment that is custom made, tailored for each individual, then that's a problem. We we need to make that something that is economically viable, even if it means resorting to socialism, bum, 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 or communism.
3: The problem I have with the current situation in America is the healthcare situation, right? Yeah, okay. And right now, in America, the only industrialized country that does not have a na- nationwide healthcare care system. Yeah, I mean, sure, you can get any service you want if you have the cash. Yeah. If you're a member of the elite. This is not a good distribution system. Agreed. Okay. And I don't think socialism... <sighs> Social, you know, and, and you say, well, what's the alternative to capitalism? Well, the alternative to capitalism is some form of collectivism or socialism. Well, there's a bunch of different kinds of socialism. Some are just taxation schemes to fund systems that we think should be basic. Some of them involve central planning. Some people hate central planning. Some people think some things should be centrally planned. So I have a problem with people who say that capitalism is the answer. Because I see myself as being deprived by capitalism of something I could very well might need to save my life one day.
2: Well said, sir. On the
0: same note, if there are many kinds of socialism, are there many kinds of capitalism? I, don't, I mean, I'm I asking, think
2: there might be. Yeah, I yeah, don't know. I,
0: I actually don't know. About Me neither. That.
3: Because I don't yeah, know well, that. Do we have a would... reference for that? The system we have in America is not pure capitalism. It's really what, would, what you would call crony capitalism or oligarchy. It's actually a, a fixed number of people who uh, essentially have ownership control, although we don't really say that, but that's the case. And there's people competing to get into that club, and there's other people who are getting born into that club, and then the laws are written in a way – Where, you know, a a doctor's son doesn't really think about, doesn't really have to think about these things because the environment has been engineered so that he stays in the same level his father was, right? So that's certainly not what Ayn Rand meant when she wrote about capitalism in The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. That was a pure, driven, merit based thing. And sure, they love to use the word meritocracy, but that's not what you have when you have dynasty families in the country, like the Bushes. Like, you know, these, these really connected families, you know, the heirs, the doors of the American Revolution, the heirs of this and the heirs of that, that are just unbeatable because of where they're started. That's not a pure competitive system by any chance
2: Yeah, and and that's a. after I said I don't know if there are other forms of capitalism. I realized that I don't live in the US, and actually I live in a capitalistic society here in New Zealand, and it's very different than the US. I think by US standards, you would probably call New Zealand a socialist country, and I think that would shock People who are native to New Zealand, because they would just be like, "Well, we don't have socialism," or maybe they would be okay with that term, and that's why I made those assumptions at the beginning because I didn't want to get into like, "Well, what's socialism and how do we mean socialism?" You know, it's whatever. Point being that it doesn't have to be as cutthroat, and I am witnessing that a little bit in in New Zealand. I'll I'll admit. Yet people
0: from all over the world in different quote unquote capitalist societies, many of them are beating down the door to come here in order to pursue ideas or innovations that they have that they find their own markets their own countries their own societies are are very very difficult places to get innovative ideas going you hear it all the time people from different parts of europe want to come here because you could work your butt off all of your life and never get the opportunity to rise quote-unquote rise okay doing a lot of quoting here air quotes and many people come here because the perception is that you can make it here and i think possibly doing a riff on what deep geek was saying that there is a club and there's competition to get into the club and i think the thing about america is that it is possible to get into this club if you're ambitious enough if you're smart enough and in a way if you're ruthless enough you can muscle your way into this crowd whereas in other societies it's it is literally impossible To do that, Uh, you know, I mean, if you could work your butt off in many countries, no matter how hard you worked, you were never going to make it the way you could here. Now, is that necessarily a reflection of how things are going right or going wrong in America? I'm not, I don't know. I, I can't make a judgment value on that because
2: I'm not one of those people. But, you know, it's something I've heard before. I think that's a really that That's a good point, and i I'm sure in some countries, yeah, you cannot make yourself you you can't get yourself into uh the club i i I do think that one unique thing that America has that I think we underestimate a lot of times and and I didn't see it till I moved to New Zealand, but is its size it's it's it it is a very, very large country with a centralized government and so there's a demand for practically everything. If you if you think about it in America, there's probably a demand for it. And I mean there's certainly demand around the world for a lot of stuff too, but it, there's not the unification there. There's are all kind of artificial borders that we've put up to to make sure that people can't sort of share a bunch of stuff across national borders. So I think I don't know that we know yet how to account for the size of america and how what that does to affect going to america and saying hey i've got this great idea who wants to fund me because there's just so many people in america and you're bound to find some group of people who want the thing that you are going to develop and i don't know that you get that anywhere else in the world
0: well isn't that what something like the european union the eu was designed to kind of compensate for you know you had all these states and collectively, the EU is actually not so small anymore. You know, it's actually pretty big. I don't know how successful they are in allowing this sort of innovation to flourish over there. But I have heard personally, I have, I have met people from Europe, from Greece, from Italy, from Spain and Portugal and countries like this that have said over and over that you, you try to get your business off the ground. You try to get things going and you'll get a lot of people that say that's a great idea And then you'll get nothing out of them. You'll get nothing because there's just this, either the market isn't big enough and you don't get enough people who share your vision, or there's this general perception that nothing's ever going to change. And there are, are a fair amount of people that come here thinking that in my country, nothing ever changes. You work hard and yet nothing ever changes. Whereas over here, if you work hard, you can make a difference. You can make change in your life. I think the size of the country is big because that directly relates to the size of your market. You can come over here and if you have a great idea, say a computing idea, you have an idea for some sort of maybe a device, right? Because if it was purely digital, you could do that from anywhere in the world. But if it was, say, a device that required a manufacturing base, it required designers to design something, and then probably it would be built in China or some other industrialized country where it was cheaper to get labor literally but you try to find someone who is going to bankroll your concept in some other country there are many people that come here because they can't find that sort of support where they are and they'll come here because they can find that support they'll find investors they'll find these venture capitalists who are looking to get a piece of that because they're always looking for the next thing that sort of thing exists here and I think it might be yeah it might be the size of our country and in other words the size of the market going back to what I was saying about tabletop gaming the size of the market allows for innovation but the actual innovators that's a very small amount and free innovation free sharing of ideas and of assets i think that becomes a much smaller part of the larger markets
2: that's only my opinion yeah but you know what there's the flip side of that maybe is is how we have in america all of the i mean heck in america you can make a startup with an idea for something that already exists. You know, you've got Uber reinventing a taxi cab, you know? Like, that wasn't a startup that needed to happen, but it's huge now. You've got Airbnb moving, apparently, from what I've read, I don't know if it's a joke or not, but they're apparently moving into rentable rooms that you can go to. It's a hotel, but they put their name on it, Airbnb, and and now it's it's being funded, you know? I mean, you've got things – there's such a market in America that we are funding things that don't need to be (laughs) – invented because they already exist
0: well you could look at something like say uber and the you know many people see uber as having completely shaken up the transportation industry and all this other nonsense and you're right it is just a taxi but it made taxiing much more convenient for a lot of people they didn't have to actually go out in the street and try to flag these you know in a lot of ways it was an industry that was really ripe for Shake-Up, because they had yeah, become, that's yeah you yeah know, it was really, really ripe. So I wouldn't say that there was no need for something like it. Now, you could argue that Uber has made a whole bunch of missteps on their own, and they're already becoming ripe to be upset themselves. But when I lived in New York, if you wanted to catch a cab uptown, it had gotten to the point in the 90s where that was a crapshoot. You didn't know if you could even get a taxi a lot of times, you know, depending on where you were in the city. You didn't know, you know, I might have to walk three, four, five blocks before I can get anyone to even stop for me. And if you were a person of color, forget it. You know, the idea of taking taxis was a lot of times you just never even considered it because they're never gonna stop for you. You know? I had a friend in New York in the nineties, he he was from India and he had a dark complexion. And he said, I will stand on that street corner for 15, 20 minutes trying to flag down a cab and none of them will stop for me. And they're all being driven by people from my own country. My own people won't stop for me because of the complexion of my skin. That was an industry that was ripe for upsetting because it was destroying itself. And, you know, so I wouldn't say that there was no need for that. I think there was a very, very big need for that. I don't think an industry can be upset unless there's something inherently wrong for it. There's a need that isn't being filled. You know, go, going back to game, I'm sorry I keep jumping back to gaming, because but I do have some personal knowledge of the gaming industry from the early days. The market was small back then, and I think the market is small now. I don't think it's ripe for upsetting that particular market, because it's. I don't think it's ever going to be big. I think I can draw a parallel with these smaller markets, maybe overseas, a country where the market is very small and it's very hard to get anything done to something like tabletop gaming, where you could try to come up with a whole new company that's going to take on Wizards of the Coast. And I think you would have a very tough time trying to do that because the market just isn't there. So I think capitalism, I don't know, what am I drawing a parallel to? I'm not sure. Deep Geek, do you see any relation to the type of capitalism that might exist, going into something like crony capitalism, where things are really, really can be the the amount of abuse that can occur in in a system like that. Do you think it's market dependent, the size of a market, or not?
3: I think market size, or even geographical size, not talking about you know the dollar size amount, is vital to. The ability, having enough of a critical mass to create innovation. And the reason I say that is because I remember noticing that at a certain point in warfare, naval powers emerged as a dominant factor, and they were all of a certain size. There was the colonies, there was the British Empire, and there was Japan. And they had a certain population size, and so they could, all the things necessary to become a naval power. And every time you say that, I think of this, I think of having to need a certain size, not necessarily a size in the market, but just having a size in the country and in the geographical location to have enough critical mass, to have enough resources to pull something off. The only country I can think of that's really, really tiny and is an innovator is Cuba and the industry to fight cancer. That is the only exception I see to that.
0: I'm wondering, is it possible, again, going back to the original point, is it possible to have a truly open environment with a free sharing of ideas, something that is possibly highly fractured, a market essentially, that is highly, highly, highly fractured and is of a very large size. Do you think that those things are impossible? Because in my opinion, if you have a large market, a large user base, even if it is highly, highly diversified, if someone can see that there is a lot of money there, that person will bend their intellectual powers, their talents, and their charisma towards harnessing that marketplace in some fashion and i believe that's how you get things like facebook and the googles and all of these essential monopolies on a particular thing that should conversation there shouldn't be any single way that you could harness conversation and yet the telecoms before them and then things like facebook have been able to do that so that the conversations of billions billions of people can now be harnessed And I don't think that there's any way that something of size can remain truly free and open because there's going to be money there. There's always going to be money there. And if there's enough, you're going to have people that are going to figure out how to make money out of it. In a capitalist society, as was described, that means control. That means holding on to it.
3: Well, what I think of over this is I think of the marketplace for media. I mean, it is fractional. It has dominant players. It has its its so-called mainstream players. It's big producers, big, slick commercial producers, but there's still always room for an independent. That
0: wasn't always the case, though. I mean, the independents were really adjuncts to the major players until the internet came about. And I would argue that media is still in its overturning phase. I don't think... We're quite sure how that's going to play out just yet. Yeah, agreed. But you go back before the internet and you had major, major dominant players in the entertainment industry and a bunch of tiny, small independents who were all trying to get a piece of that pie. They all wanted to be picked up by a major distributor. They all wanted to make money on it. Very few of the independents back in the old days, very few, if any, were really what I would consider freely open and sharing, the way we understand open culture right now. you know, there, yeah, were but, in, but, there were innovators, but those were artists, and they were specifically attempting to do something completely different. But I wouldn't call that open and freely sharing.
3: What about Samizdat? I don't what know we, what that is. Uh, well, it actually has its birth in Russia, but it's been replicated in, in ways. In the times of print media, where you had major newspaper companies and major book publishers there was actually a scene of self-made xerox newsletters in eastern europe called semis dot and this was taken over and adopted and became the zine culture of the 70s 80s and 90s in america and when i say independent that's what i'm thinking of is something of that size and oddly enough it, it relates to in podcasting Whereas Hacker Public Radio is a bunch of individual, independent creators. Nothing like, say, BBC's podcast outreach.
0: Well, I agree with that. I was part of the zine culture of the uh, early 80s myself. I had a Were you of really? Zines. Yeah, I, I had a couple of zines that I put out back then. My God, I want some. <laughs> so do I. I don't think I have any of them anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm terrible. I never hold on to this stuff. I, I get rid of it all. But, um, I had one that I, as I said before, I'm from a town called Waterbury, Connecticut and Waterbury is also, it, its nickname is the Brass City because it was a heavy industry city and its major industry was metalwork and specifically brass. It was known for its brass work. So it became known as the Brass City. I did a zine called City of Brass that I put out when I lived there back then. And then I did another one when I lived in New York in the nineties. So it. I'm familiar with the zine culture as well, and it was pretty lively, and very, there was an awful lot of sharing of culture and freedom. But one major element of the zine culture is the fact that many of these were dedicated to a very particular activity or a particular scene. Very often, like there were a lot of music scenes, and a lot of them were dedicated to a particular music scene. In other words, they were serving very, very small markets, and I think my point still, at least in my mind, my point still holds that the smaller the market, the easier it is to share information freely, but the larger it becomes, the more money is inevitably involved, and the more likely you're going to see predation or at least control of that market. I mean, I don't understand capitalism or socialism hardly at all, so I'm just talking off the top of my head but too do you feel that a large market some you know like say video gaming do you think video gaming could realistically become as vibrant for homebrewers as
2: tabletop role-playing gaming yeah probably not be, and and stay economically viable at least the way that we do things now Because I mean, obviously we already have a vibrant indie video game scene. I mean, if you go to itch.io, you you can find all kinds of cool little indie games, and and it's there, it exists, uh, and it probably has for a long time, but that's not what you mean, right? I mean, you're talking about, like, could there be lots of big games that take lots of resources to make, and you have... Actors and motion capture, and all this other stuff, original music, you know, with full orchestras. Well, again, by its very nature,
0: tabletop gaming, you can get the same experience or a better experience rolling the entire thing yourself than or as you would if you bought a complete package, printed package from a major tabletop gaming publisher. In other words, indie production of that content, of that material is inherently rolled into that experience, and yet the market is very small. If it got bigger and bigger and bigger, do you think that level of innovation and free sharing of ideas, do you believe that that would stay as an important and baked-in aspect of role-playing games, or do you feel that most people do not want to do that? Most people just want to be entertained.
2: Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe I don't know. Um, I like to think that yes, it could, it could, it could, it could remain. But I could be living in a bubble of lots of little indie projects that have vibrant communities built up around them. Yeah, that might be my bias. And I, I feel like in the long run, or at the end of this episode, as we are, I, I guess I feel like we've come back around to the last couple of episodes that we've done where we've been talking about the state of art and how to fund art and all this other stuff because I, I feel like that's where we've come back to. But I, I don't know that it was my point all along to solve that problem. I think the the idea that I want to, to communicate to to people is that maybe we need to relook at how we're distributing the financing and even just the markets of lots of different industries. And I love... The idea that Deep Geek brought up about the health industry, you know, being just completely wrong-ended. It's ostensibly there to serve everyone, and yet it serves just such a small amount of people. And and most people seem to be okay with that in America anyway. And it's done completely differently in other places. So I, I kind of do get the notion that there's a way to, to do this capitalism thing in a different way than, say, America is doing. Um I, I don't believe that any of us are economists enough to really detail how that would work. But I think if we look around, there might be other ways to manage this and still have some level of innovation and progress.
1: You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org.